0: Schooner America's second act was as lively as her first. The 19th century speed machine served both sides in the Civil War. Nowadays, the race for the America's Cup looks like science fiction, with flying monohulls skimming along at fifty knots, hoisted by foils above the aqueous friction. It is a sign of how far we've come, however, that the original America, after which the race was named, inspired similar awe when in 1851 the Yankee schooner humbled Britain's fastest yachts in a race attended by Queen Victoria who came in second she asked there is no second your majesty the answer was a characteristically British characterization of a blowout Had the Queen asked what now for America the future might have whispered in her ear honey you ain't seen nothing yet America had a second act, and it would be far wilder ride than her first. Red's Wine Bar, Green Cove Springs, Florida Why don't we take one of your boats to where they scuttled the America, I asked the guy on the next bar stool. Peter Kine's company shoots off fireworks all over North Florida from a fleet of pontoon barges. The Confederates sunk her in Dunn's Creek to keep her out of Union hands, and I think I know the exact spot. Soon after, in August 2021, we ventured out, like Simon and Garfunkel, to look for America. We launched one of Kine's barges into the St. John's River and set a course for Dunn's. It was only after we reached the spot, a 180-degree switchback in the creek, close to its source at Crescent Lake, that Kine came to the realization that America wasn't actually there anymore. Her scuttling was just a chapter in a history that would continue for another 80 years. Hilarious. I didn't mislead the guy on purpose, and I was flattered that he thought that I might possess secret knowledge about a famous yacht's final resting place. We chalked it up to the kind of miscommunication that happens when plans are made in bars late in the evening. Me, I just wanted a ride to check out some depths and grab a few photographs. Toy for British Aristocrats So what brought America from the Isle of Wight to Dunn's Creek and what happened afterward? Ten days after winning the race around Isle of Wight and securing the cup for the New York Yacht Club, America's ownership syndicate sold her to a British noble for 5,000 pounds. Lord John de Blanquière cruised her a bit and celebrated when a letter arrived from the United States disclosing the location of two dozen bottles of very, very expensive wine hidden aboard and informing his lordship that he was free to dispose of this treasure as he saw fit. De Blanquier then went on to race her a bit too, but in 1853 he sold her to another nobleman named Henry Templeton, a collector of yachts who spent the season shifting among various yacht clubs to which he belonged. He hardly used America and let her deteriorate at her birth before selling her to a shipbuilder for next to nothing in 1858. Henry Sotheby Pitcher restored the boat to her former excellence, but managed to lose the distinctive eagle that graced America's transom. The carving was later found serving as a sign on Isle of Wight for a tavern named The Eagle, which remained in business until the late 1960s. And now the story gets interesting. Pitcher sold America to an enigmatic character who called himself Henry Edward Dacy, some of the time. No record of Dacy exists before he re-registered the vessel as Camilla in 1860 and no one has found any mention of him whatsoever after the final year of the American Civil War. Perhaps the most thorough account of America's history comes from a prolific writer-researcher who worked the latter half of the 20th century. In his book, The America, the story of the world's most famous yacht, Charles Boswell described Dacey thus. On one side of the Atlantic or the other, in print or in longhand, his name was spelled nine additional different ways. Also, while usually addressed as Mr., He was often called Captain, and on at least one occasion, he was referred to as Lord Dacey. Just as Dacey's name had never appeared in the yachting press prior to 1860, it did not appear again after 1864. Taking as gospel the assumption that Edward Dacey is not the mysterious mariner's real name, nautical historians have spent more than a century fretting over his true identity. Actually, it matters little. All that matters is that for a brief while in the long career of the Yacht America, the courteous yet careless man known as Daisy sailed her three times across the Atlantic with interesting objectives. Daisy and Camilla disappeared from view for eight months after the purchase, he claiming to have voyaged to the West Indies, although there was no proof of that, and moreover he had a habit of misinforming customs officers of his prior whereabouts. What is known is that Camilla arrived at Savannah on April 25, 1861, just 13 days after the start of the Civil War. Within weeks, the Confederacy had purchased Camilla and, short of everything to fight a war, including naval officers, had persuaded Dacey to remain in command. He had apparently represented himself as a former British Navy captain. The rebel government paid Dacey $26,000 for Camilla, about $900,000 today, and an additional 6000 to equip and provision her for her first mission. On May 21st, 1861, Camilla got underway for Ireland, carrying as passengers, Daisy's wife and child, and Confederate agents whose mission was to secure construction slots for two ironclad warships in England or France, and to root out a possibly disloyal Confederate representative already there. The schooner flew the Union Jack, but Union spies were able to deduce the truth and issued an APB. On October 25, 1861, Camilla returned to Dixie, arriving at Jacksonville, Florida, and there she accomplished, well, maybe nothing. As Boswell wrote, a publication of the Florida Historical Society of many years ago declared that the vessel then became a blockade runner, and made flying trips to Nassau and Bermuda. Confederate customs records indicate, however, that if such voyages were made, they were limited to two. The yacht was out of the port once in December 1861, returned in early January the year following, and then quickly went out and back in later in January. That last return to the St. Johns River was a dramatic one, according to a description by an eyewitness. One moonlit night at Mayport, when the Federal gunboats were just far enough outside of the Black Hills to be faintly visible, there came up out of the east on a wholesale sailing breeze a yacht with every stitch of canvas set and drawing. The water cut from her bows like a knife would do it, and it was thrown high over her deck and onto her sails. There came a flash and a boom from the gunboat and a shot crossed over her bow, followed by more flashes and shots. But on the gallant craft came, spar and rigging untouched, heeling over now, and then riding herself gracefully. Running the blockade that night was described by Boswell as the last advantageous use of the Camilla as a Confederate vessel. Other accounts claim that she had been renamed Memphis during her Confederate service. Probably not trapped then scuttled. At some point before March 11, 1862, Camilla's name had been changed back to America. On that night, U.S. Navy warships steamed up the St. John's River and took Jacksonville without firing a shot. Frightened local officials quickly volunteered that the steamship St. Mary's and America had slipped their moorings and headed south on the river the night before, with America most likely under tow. Retreating Confederate forces had also burned a ship under construction, seven sawmills, two iron foundries, and a railroad depot. A hotshot young Confederate officer named Charles Hemming is widely credited with having led the scuttling expedition. A fellow soldier once described him as an accomplished boatman. Dunn's Creek connects the St. John's River to Crescent Lake, the third largest in Florida. Hemming's expedition sunk America about 70 miles south of Jacksonville by water. Her topmast had been removed, but it was reported that she had been sunk along the creek bank in such a way that only her port rail showed above water. That makes sense for a 23-foot beam in 20 feet of water. America's draft was just over 10 feet, and having piloted trawlers through Dunn's Creek several times, I can only imagine the difficulties the Confederate crew must have had making the tow. The Shoal Draft steamer St. Mary's was also scuttled about 12 miles further along in another creek at the southern end of Crescent, called Dunn's Lake at the time. A career U.S. Navy lieutenant named Thomas Stevens was in charge of the Jacksonville incursion. He and his fleet commander made capturing America a priority and, according to Boswell, were almost boyish in their enthusiasm to take what may have well been the world's most famous yacht, but where was she? The Confederates launched a disinformation campaign, spreading the falsehood that America had been scuttled at Black Creek, about 50 miles north of Dunn's. Accounts from later in the 19th century continued to damn Black Creek in the America story, in what today would be considered blowback defined as disinformation that persists among an unintended audience. In any event, the intended audience was not fooled for very long. Florida was an information sieve for Union intelligence gathering. Sources of information included slaves, Native Americans, and growing bands of Confederate deserters. Ordinary Floridians were beginning to go hungry by 1862, and many would gladly provide information for a pound of bacon. And, then as now, many residents had recently moved down from the north and secretly owed allegiance to the Union. Stevens led a small fleet of gunboats up the St. John's and was almost immediately rewarded with the information he needed to find America. He found the yacht up Dunn's Creek just as his informant had promised. Stephen sent back to Jacksonville for the gear required to raise a 100-footer, displacing more than 170 tons. Adventurous Enthusiasm Working with what one, one author called Adventurous Enthusiasm, Yankee sailors applied themselves to the task. First, they tried to improvise a travel lift by rigging a sling from three trees on the river bank under the boat to a gunboat alongside the Darlington. They tried for a week to gain purchase, eventually snapping the trees. An article from an 1872 edition of Aquatic Monthly magazine recounts what happened next. Just as it looked as if the yacht must be abandoned, one of the pickets brought in a lengthy specimen of Florida backwoodsman, who said he was present when the yacht was sunk, and that she was scuttled by three two-inch holes bored forward and two aft. Upon this information a mate from the Wabash and another mechanic made three rough pumps from pine boards, thirteen feet long, and flumed the two square hatches on the after-deck of America until they were six inches above the water of the creek. Putting a pump down each flume, with four men to each pump, water was thrown out much quicker than it would make through the five auger holes, and she commenced to rising at once. Presumably, they could have applied the idea earlier, given that they didn't bother to plug the holes until after most of the water had been pumped out. Long story short, America's internal ballast was transferred to the largest gunboat, and thus lightened, the barely damaged vessel was towed back to Jacksonville. Meanwhile, according to Boswell, a resident of the nearby town of Palatka was being blamed for providing Stevens with America's whereabouts. The man... Identified only as De Costa was accused of being a union collaborator. He was arrested and reportedly held by the owner of a local grain grinding business of, at Orange Mills, a few miles north of Duns Creek along the St. John's. Stevens gave the mills owner, Dr. R. G. Mays, a deadline to turn De Costa over to the Federals when Mays failed to produce his prisoner. The Union Navy shelled orange mills, destroying its buildings. Of DeCosta's fate, there was no mention. Ship of the U.S. Navy, then Ben Butler's. In April 1862, America was towed to Port Royal, South Carolina, which had recently been taken by the Union, where she was refit and put into service, first as a dispatch runner, then as an armed blockader with a crew of 27 patrolling off Charleston. In October, she nabbed the small blockade runner Davy Crockett With a cargo of naval stores, resin and turpentine, bound for Bermuda. After participating in several successful engagements in 1863, America was dispatched to serve as a training ship for the U.S. Naval Academy, which had moved its operations from Annapolis to Newport, Rhode Island for the duration of the war. En route, having been crewed by midshipmen, she was at one point redirected to participate in the hunt for a notorious Confederate privateer. After the war, one of its most colorful soldiers and later a congressman, Major General Ben Butler of Massachusetts, managed to acquire America as his personal yacht through chicanery. In June 1873, Butler bought America at auction using the services of a straw buyer for $5,000. The sale had been rigged and later became a subject of congressional investigation, which changed nothing. The Navy got a small measure of revenge, When Butler's crew arrived at Annapolis to take possession of the yacht, they found the internal ballast had been removed, with Academy officials claiming the valuable lead ingots had not been part of the deal. Butler connived to get his lead anyway, and a shady deal was struck with the Boston Navy Yard, which supplied the bars at taxpayers' expense. He had her overhauled twice, the first time by Don McKay, the famed builder of clipper ships. He raced America with fervor, and occasionally his opponents were also political rivals, men he hated. After Butler's death in 1893, America languished at the dock, and in 1897, Butler's son gave her away to another Massachusetts politician named Butler Ames, who sold her to a Massachusetts banker, Charles Foster, in 1917 who sold her to the America Restoration Fund in 1921, which donated her back to the U.S. Naval Academy, which assigned her the designation IX-41. The Navy, however, failed to maintain her, and belatedly, in 1941, she was hauled out at the Annapolis Yacht Yard for some work. Her stern hogged several inches on the railway. Work began on America, but after Pearl Harbor, she was all but forgotten as the yard turned to building torpedo boats for the war. On Sunday, March 29, 1942, a blizzard struck Annapolis, dropping up to three feet of snow on her brick streets and collapsing the shed that housed America. Her run was over. America was destroyed 91 years after her launch. Officially, though, she was one of only three commissioned Navy ships in service during both the Civil War and World War II the others being the USS Constitution and the USS Consolation. Postscript. Scuttler-in-Chief Charles Hemming went on to have an illustrious life. He was captured by Union forces during a battle in Tennessee, escaped from his prison camp, fled to Canada, and conducted guerrilla raids into upstate New York, took a steamer to Cuba, and snuck back to Jacksonville just before the war ended after being lowered into a dinghy from a blockade runner. The Union, as it happened, was very, very good to Heming. after the war. He became wealthy as a Colorado banker, and in 1899 donated a 62-foot-high Confederate monument costing $20,000 to the city of Jacksonville, which was erected at Hemming Park. Two years ago, as part of the anti-Confederate statutory movement, the monument was taken down and returned to Heming's descendants and the park renamed. Thomas Stevens, who undid Hemming's work at Dunn's Creek, was rewarded for his competence throughout the war with a promotion to admiral. He was buried at Arlington National Cemetery. A World War II destroyer was named after him. About Henry Dacey, I would like to imagine that he was some kind of time traveler, like a character in the Outlander series, maybe a sailor of the future who became bored with his flying monohull and wanted to experience the grit and grind of 19th century sailing and blockade warfare. Alas, even as fantasy, this scenario won't hold up. Dacey's last documented act was to take money from gullible Confederate investors hoping to fund another gunboat from England, this just weeks before Lee's surrender. Nobody with the ability to move through time would have the slightest need for 19th century gold.